Hello, and welcome to the Wild Heart Meditation Center podcast. We release these episodes every week on Wednesday mornings, and the best way to support us is by clicking subscribe and taking a moment to rate the podcast wherever you are listening. If you'd like to support our efforts to keep the nonprofit Meditation Center open in Nashville, you can donate via Venmo by sending your donation to at Wild Heart Nashville, or you can make a donation through our website, wildheartmeditationcenter.org, by clicking the Donate tab. Peace and love. Hope you enjoy. So we'll jump into the topic for the day. Uh, This morning I wanted to talk about impermanence of self. And if you've been coming for the last month and a half, two months, you'll know that we've been doing a series of talks on something called the three characteristics, which the three characteristics can kind of be summarized as the core, the essence of what the Buddha taught. And for the past two months or so, we've been focused on impermanence and have given a variety of different teachings on impermanence, and us as a community have been talking a lot about impermanence. And so today I'm going to maybe go a little bit more into the deep end. And just a disclaimer, when you've been talking about something that is so simple, really, everything changes. Do you know that everything changes? Have you experienced change in your life? When you talk about something so simple for so long, there's a subtlety to the Buddhist teaching that doesn't mean you have to be advanced or intellectual to understand, but it means that with practice, you can start picking up on this simple thing, impermanence, at a really subtle level. And uh, we're going to talk about some of the subtlety of impermanence and as it relates to our, our self-view, our concept of ourselves, how we think about ourselves. And have you noticed that how you think about yourself causes a lot of stress and suffering some of the time? Do you notice that your mind is not always very kind to you? at points throughout the day. It can be very critical or judgmental, have a lot of high expectations. Um, Do you notice that your mind is often comparing yourself to other people? Their success, how you look, how they look, age, their charisma or confidence, Have you noticed that the mind often tells us that we're inadequate or incapable a lot of the time? Self-doubt is a part of the mind. So I want to talk about impermanence, but I want to talk about how the Buddhist teachings on impermanence and also the meditative practices that we're doing help us to free ourselves from self-limiting beliefs from the critical mind, the comparing mind, the mind that's full of self-doubt or inadequacy. So hopefully some of these things are related. Well, I see a couple heads nodding. The Pali Sanskrit word for impermanence is anicca. 
I once saw this on the license plate of a sports car at IMS, the Meditation Retreat Center in Massachusetts. I thought it was uh, pretty great. Impermanence is just the simple idea, as an idea, that things change. And it's really the core liberating insight that is underneath all of the Buddha's teachings. If you had to kind of boil down the Dharma into its essence, who was it? Maybe Suzuki Roshi, I forget, but someone said that they would say, not always so. Things in life are not always so. Unpredictable, inconstant, in flux, transient, changing. And so we notice this on a lot of different levels. There's the, just the external world. What we think of is the world out there. Right? There's the macro level. The, the universe is expanding, right? Don't make me go into like science land because I don't, I don't know much. But from what I've heard, <laughs> the universe is expanding. That's pretty cool. The universe is changing, right? Uh, even at the global scale, the earth, climate change, they even call it climate change. The climate's changing. In particular, we're looking at our impact on that. And then we look at the, from the macro level, more down to the, the medium level, the meso level. You can look at out there in the world all the different systems that we organize ourselves in that are changing. Our, our nationalities, our, you know, uh, the nations we like, the nations we hate, the uh, economies are changing all of the time, cultural identities are changing and being influenced by one another globally. And so there's the meso level of change that we see out there, and then there's even at the micro level, thus I've heard from the physicists looking at physical reality, that even on the quantum level, they say that all particles, the composite of atoms, all particles are also constantly changing. They call it subtle impermanence. And that they said that all of the, uh, the nucleus and the protons and neutrons, or in the nucleus, the protons and neutrons are constantly exchanging energy. And so that in the outer layer of atoms, the electrons also are never at a single location in their orbitals. So they say that it, uh, particles can be looked at as a vibration, almost like a wave on a string rather than a static thing. And so you look at something like a podium and you're like, how is this changing? But at the microscopic level, it is. And so that's pretty cool, but in my opinion, which is just an opinion, uh, the Buddha's not really actually talking about the physical world. He's not making a comment on the world out there. The Buddha himself says he's only really interested in one thing, which is really two things. What causes suffering and what leads to the end of it? So he's interested in kind of almost psychologically how do we deal with change 
And how does really the mind create a lot of suffering around change? And the Buddha says, even in the Dhammapada, it's a famous collection of teachings, it's the first sentence in the teaching is that all experience is preceded by the mind, made of the mind, ruled by the mind. So he's interested in not the world out there, but really this the way that the mind experiences change and how it doesn't like it. And more than just saying, okay, the world changes and we suffer over that as a statement, the Buddha actually offers a set of practices. He's, he's kind of given himself this mission in his teaching to provide us with the skillful means for helping us to deal with change. And one of the main tools that he gives us, not the only one, but one of the main ones is meditation. So what are some of the ways that we as humans suffer around change? There's also a macro, meso, and micro level. I think on the macro level, we experience change through birth, aging, sickness, and death. And this is an area of life that we are definitely aware of, but not regularly. You know, for maybe Buddhists, you're a little bit more talking about these things because the Buddha talks about these things a lot. So it's maybe more part of your community discussion around living with pain or illness or dealing with loss or, um, you know, these types of things. So it's definitely a part of our, our world. It's, it's a big part of what we see reflected in art and music and in poetry and writing. Last time I taught, I offered a quote by Nas from the Illmatic album, Life's a bitch and then you die. <laughs> and you never know why. Or, yeah, that's why we get high. That's what he says. Life's a bitch and then you die. That's why we get high, because you never know when you're going to go. That's the quote. So, you know, even Nas knows about this human level of dealing with impermanence, the uncertainty of death. And on the meso level, this is the area I think we pay attention to the most, is our circumstances change in life a lot, a lot. So our careers change. You know, even just thinking over the pandemic, I know a lot of people have moved like remote work or have lost jobs or have moved locations. That's another thing that changes a lot is our location. Uh, friendships change a lot, even as you go through the lifespan, you know, just the natural order of things as we get older. We notice friends change, romantic relationships. We all can talk a lot about breakups and heartache. There's tons of music and entertainment about that as well. 
But I'm kind of convinced that this middle area of our circumstances changing is, is really a big place that we're focused on. And that's, that's great. So we talk about it and we're honest about it and it helps to be vulnerable with people that we care about around these changes in life to help us to deal, right? Because at the end of the day, what the Buddha is helping us to do is, is not to change the fact that things are impermanent, but to come to terms with it. And so you may say, well, how do we come to terms with it? Knowing it is not enough, for sure. As a matter of fact, sometimes the, the phrase uh, spiritual bypassing has kind of come around in the last few years. I think sometimes we can be like, Hey, man, shit sucks. Everything changes. You know, when a friend's going through a breakup or just lost their job, that's not very helpful a lot of the time. So I think what the Buddha is encouraging us to do on kind of in this level of our experience is to, is to yeah, have, have compassion, to practice compassion for ourselves and others when we go through the loss side of change. And to practice non-attached appreciation, joy, non-attached joy when we're experiencing the gain side of impermanence. An exciting new career, a new relationship. And for ourselves and others, taking delight in other people's success and happiness and enjoyment in life. And so how we come to terms with change is we try to respond more wisely to the change. First, by just acknowledging that it's happening, which, believe it or not, in my opinion, from my own experience, is harder than I think it is a lot of the time. Like, oh, yeah, I'm going through a major change. Sometimes I have to pay someone $150 to go in their office and be like, oh, wow, that really sounds like you're going through a lot. And I'm like, yeah, man, it is. I didn't even <laughs> notice that. How stressed out I was till I walked in here. Right? So this is how it usually goes down for me. But to come to terms means, I think, first just to say, yeah, we need to kind of acknowledge that change has a big impact. Our brains like things predictable. It likes things familiar. It likes things routine. It's not our fault, and that's great in a lot of ways. You know, so every day we're not having an existential crisis. It's like, oh, I got in my car and I drove to work and it was the same car. You know, if you had to wake up and groundhog day your day every single day, that would suck. So the brain likes that routine, predictability, all those things. But life shows up and the car breaks down and the relationship comes to an end and the, and the job changes and the move is necessary and you have money and then you don't have money and all of those circumstances change. So how can we respond more skillfully in those moments? Well, the Buddha is really interesting with this because he didn't invent meditation. Um, so I should say, I guess, the uh, ancient Indian system of dealing with this is really interesting. Because they say, if you want to understand how to deal with these bigger experiences of impermanence, you, get, you really need to sit down with these smaller ones that are occurring. 
right? If you want to be able to deal with the change in career, or the breakup, or, you know, we want to be able to actually come into the experience of impermanence in a more intentional way, in a more directed way through the practice of meditation. So this is the micro level of impermanence. For me, a simple way of saying this, and we talked a little bit about this last time, is that I prefer to, instead of call it impermanence, especially when we're talking about meditation, I prefer to call it inconstancy or transiency. That when you start to slow down and observe what's happening in here, you start to see that your experience itself is impermanent, inconstant, transient. Thoughts are coming and going. Sensations, feelings, moment to moment, sensory events, sounds and smells and tastes. These things are happening all of the time. There's this constant pervasive stimulation of change that's unfolding. And this is the practice of meditation, to observe change within the four foundations of mindfulness, within the body, within feeling, within mind states, within, for lack of better words right now, thoughts. And so I want to talk about, especially want to talk about thoughts and self. You know, a lot of times I notice that my perspective on how I'm doing or where I'm at is really conditioned based upon my current mood. So if I'm having a bad day, my mental narrative a lot of the times, even if it's not explicit, like out loud in my mind, my general attitude, if I'm not having the best of day, is that I'm not doing well in life. And it's a simple thing to say, but it's such a insidious, it's such a pervasive thing to get out of, right? It's very convincing, my mind. I don't know if yours is, but... You know, in, in most of the time, I am humbled, not embarrassed at this point, been in the meditation game for a little while, I'm humbled to admit that I don't catch my mind, these narratives of how good or bad I'm doing. I don't catch it a lot of the time. So a lot of my mental narrative about how I'm doing is really based on how I'm feeling. And with the meditation practice, it has helped me to slow down and to kind of ask the question of like, what is happening right now? Not out there, because that's what we normally get involved with, right? That's the meso level. And that stuff's important. But mindfulness teaches us this other level of experience. I could sit down with my friend Aaron and be like, yeah, man, I went through this breakup and all this stuff. And he could have empathy and it could be helpful on that level. 
But that doesn't help me when I'm driving in my car and just, I'm never going to be with anyone again. And I've always been this way and I'm always going to be this way. And I have this narrative of myself. And to be able to have mindfulness to say, wait, what is going on right now? Oh, wow, the mind is really tripping. Like really tripping right now. And then to be able to have this space open up. It's not always easy to get there. But the starting point is to recognize it, right? And slow down with it a little bit. And with time, a space can open up. And that's the space for compassion, the space for kindness, the space for understanding. Oh, man, this is really hard right now. I care for you. I feel this. But this actually says nothing about you as a person. You're a person that's hurting, not a person that's unlovable or not good enough or always going to be this way or always going to be that way. That is just a thought, actually. There's a painful feeling, but then there's a worse thought a lot of the time. And in Buddhism, we call this the second arrow. So do you kind of know what I'm talking about? Even if you're new here, you know the difference between just the ugh. That, the Buddha saying the ugh is unavoidable. He's like, that's just, you're stuck with that. That sucks. Have compassion, care for it, be present with it. It will change. But the self-made story, as Brene Brown calls it, is the second arrow. That narrative that's constructed. Brene Brown says, of no fault of our own, the mind often attempts to keep us safe by becoming overly concerned with our status and about what people think, about always being better than and always being right. I think of this part of my mind as my inner hustler. It's always telling me to compare, prove, please, perfect, outperform, and compete. The inner hustler has a shame-based fear of being ordinary. The hustler has very little tolerance for discomfort and self-reflection or a willingness to challenge its self-made stories. And then here's an interesting thing that Brene Brown says. I think mindfulness, when she says this, she says, without active awareness, the mind will not take responsibility for the stories it's telling itself, nor does it have any interest in writing new endings to them. If unattended, the mind will use its stories as armor and alibi. She says the inner hustler has a shame-based fear of being ordinary. So a lot of the narrative that I notice that the mind creates, the self-made story that the mind creates is a self that is so bad or so different or so uniquely dukkha, not good. And I don't notice this when I'm in the moment, but after many and many experiences of this, in hindsight, if you look at, she, she teaches a lot about shame. 
there's a way in which the mind not just criticizes and not just compares, but also seems to try to want to isolate us from vulnerability. And it does that by telling us that not only am I bad or wrong, but I'm uniquely bad or wrong. <laughs> like, like, yeah, I get it. People have troubles and they struggle with these things, but like, I'm not supposed to struggle with these things. And so noticing the impermanence of our experience, thoughts, emotions, sensations, can help us take a moment to view this whole process as just that, as a process. So one time I heard Joseph Goldstein giving a talk about um, selfing. This process of kind of creating the self-narrative that causes suffering. And he said that one helpful practice, mindfulness practice for it's kind of breaking out of the selfing that occurs is to switch your language from I am to there is. So what do I do about this mind that feels uniquely bad and awful and judges how I'm doing based on how I'm feeling? What do I do about that? I recognize it. It's the first step. I can ask myself, what is going on here? Oh, the mind is really critical, really hard. But what Joseph Goldstein is saying is we can also start to switch. Instead of saying, I am the one that got broken up with. I am alone. I am you know, unlovable or unworthy or not good enough or whatever the stories the mind's telling in that moment. Saying, there is. Oh, there is the feeling of loneliness. There is the story of unworthiness. There is the comparison of where I should be in my life. Watch the mind doing it instead of being in the mind creating it. That's, you see what I'm saying? It's such a subtle shift. I wish I could just learn that once and be done. Like, cool, I got it. Get out of the content, observe the process. Cool, from I am to there is. That's why we have a practice. And interestingly, everything I'm saying today, we don't have to remember and recall. If we have a mindfulness practice, mindfulness has this way of just kind of showing up for us, right? I think I shared last time, Manindraji, one of Joseph Goldstein's teachers, used to say, if you want to understand your mind and the suffering that your mind creates, all you have to do is sit down and watch it. And so mindfulness is watching your mind. Watch it create. Watch it create these stories. Watch it create these narratives. Watch it lock your whole identity into a box that's based really just on a feeling that you're having in that moment. Do you notice how, how the mind does that? So who are you? Am I that version of myself or this version of myself? Am I the version of myself on the good day or the version of myself on the bad day? 
If you start to observe the process of the mind that's creating the self, you start to see that who we are is not a noun. It's not a permanent entity. It's not an Andrew that always exists. It's a process. We are ever-changing, evolving people. Moment to moment, shaped and affected by our world. Uploading new information, having new experiences, interpreting new events. Sometimes working against our confirmation bias to have new experiences that change old beliefs and views. We are malleable. The brain has neuroplasticity. So the self is not a noun, it's a verb. This is where we go into the deep end a little bit. We'll just go there. So from Buddhist perspective, who you are is a formulation. It's a constellation. It's like a, you look into the sky and you see Orion. And you know those stars are really hundreds of millions of probably billions, trillions, I don't know numbers at that scale, light years apart from each other. Right? But when you look up, it seems to have this form. And you could call this form Andrew. And that's important, right? I need to be able to say, hey, what's up? I'm Andrew. Nice to meet you. That's good. We've got to have that. But really, I'm made up of component parts. Chris Niebauer says, he's the author of a book called No Self, No Problem, says that the sense of self that we have is really an illusion that's created by the left side of your brain. The sense that Andrew is this permanent person. And he says the left brain is an interpreter or a story maker. Pattern recognition, language, map making, and categorization are all located in the left brain. And the evidence suggests that it is exactly these types of functions that collectively lead to the sensation of a self and the strong belief in its absolute truth. So how is this helpful on a meso level as we get into the deep end? How is this helpful? How is this helpful? The deep end answer would be more will be revealed. Practice. Be curious. Sit some meditation retreats. See what happens. Right? It's not an intellectual thing. Practice. Learn about dependent origination, the five aggregates. That's the deep end answer. Cool. How is this helpful from where we're at right now? It's that we have to allow ourselves the flexibility to change, right? When we don't allow other people that, we strain those relationships. We cause resentment, right? When we don't allow ourselves that, we strain our relationship with ourselves and cause resentment. You're not how you were last year. You're not as adventurous as you used to be. A lot of these self-made stories come from different versions of ourselves in the past or future versions of ourselves that we think we need to be. And so if we start to say, oh, wow, this is just the mind kind of constructing this all, interpreting and organizing and categorizing all of these different versions of myself, we can give ourselves the space for flexibility and say, okay, cool, two-year-ago self, that's a great story of that version of you. 
who you think you need to be. That's a great story of that version of you. How about I give myself a break and let myself experience where I'm at right now? So one of the ways this helps to kind of summarize is it breaks us out of this tendency that the mind has for linearity. The mind has this, the left brain has this tendency to think that your life should be a straight line. You start here, you know, at some point you end up here, but in reality that doesn't work with our our map of impermanence. Because the map of impermanence goes like this. Up and down, up and down. So the brain's job is to store memory, to recognize patterns, to create labels, to make meaning out of our experiences. And this is the automatic function of the mind. Houston Smith wrote one of my favorite books on Buddhism, just called Buddhism, a concise introduction. He's a historian. Uh, He says that uh, the brain breathes mind like the lungs breathe air. The mind, is its job is to interpret. That's what's kept us safe. It's helpful. We don't try to get rid of that. You've got to remember always in Buddhism, it's never, anytime we have an extreme view, we're, we're, not, we're not really in the, the Dharma. So the goal is not to get rid of the mind that does that. It's to not have to just stay in it, not to be stuck in that automatic function. So there's a Greek philosopher named Heraclitus that lived actually at the time that the Buddha lived. They think that it's possible that they actually were contemporaries, like living at the same exact time. But there's not really any evidence to support that they had any exchange or exchange of ideas. But interestingly, Heraclitus was a big, big fan of impermanence, talked a lot about it. And uh, he has a, this is gendered here. I'll keep it there, but we can translate. Um, He has a really great quote where he says, No man ever steps in the same river twice, for it is not the same river and it is not the same man. No person ever steps in the same river twice, for it is not the same person, river and it is not the same person. So the sense of self arises out of conditions, is what the Buddha says. The sense of self arises out of conditions, and those conditions are what he calls the five aggregates. And the five aggregates are just a teaching tool. It's not to say, like, this is some quantitative scientific discovery. They're just labels that we can give to parts of what gives rise to what I call Andrew. And uh, they're helpful parts. The reason why they exist is to help direct our awareness to study them, to notice them. And he's saying that you can observe the five aggregates in meditation. So it's a teaching tool. And so one of the teaching tools of uh, the five aggregates is to notice the relationship between consciousness and sensory input. These are two of the aggregates. So the only reason why you can experience anything is because you have eyes, nose, mouth, ears, brain, body, nervous system, right? 
And this experience of our sense organs only materializes into our consciousness because we have the capacity to have consciousness. Simple example of this is you're always hearing sound as long as you're born with that ability. Sound is always occurring, but you're not always conscious of every sound, right? So some sound, a low humming of a neighbor's buzzsaw may be happening in the background, but you may not even be conscious. You may not even be registering it. So it's not going to come into your brain and affect you. You're not going to dislike it if you don't notice it. Does that make sense? So the Buddha is really interested in a very limited scope. He's only really interested in the type of sensory information that comes in that you notice. That's all the Buddha is interested in. He's not interested in the world out there. He's not interested in all this other stuff that's happening. He's interested, for the sake of helping us suffer less, in the sensory information that we can notice. So let's keep it really simple. What can you notice? If you're born with these abilities in varieties of form, sights, smells, tastes, sounds, cognition, thought, and feeling, sensation. Those are called the six sense spaces in Buddhism. And when they come in to our system, our brain processes these six sense spaces. And everything that comes in through our processing has a valence to it. Pleasant, unpleasant on a spectrum, and it fits somewhere in that valence. Like it, don't like it, don't care. Now, there's a ton of stuff that comes in that we don't care. But neuroscience say we don't really pay attention a lot to that stuff. The brain tends to pay attention to what? What do you think? Unpleasant or pleasant the most? Unpleasant. So the valence that we notice the most is things that are coming through sight, smell, sound, feeling, thought that are unpleasant. The mind also has this interpretation, as Chris Niebauer is saying, this perception that the Buddha is encouraging us to look at. Perception is the interpreter brain. It's the thing that labels or categorizes or makes meaning out of all of this stuff that's coming in, right? You hear a sound that goes, you know, police car, ambulance, fire truck, one of those probably, right? You don't have to think to do that. The mind just already has stored that in its procedural memory. Just knows what it is. Now, what if all of a sudden the world changed and every time there was a wee-oo, 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 you got $10 floated down from the sky? (laughs) Now, every time you hear that sound, you're like, I don't know, last time I got $10 when that happened, and is it a fire truck or am I going to get the $10 right? That's a stupid example. (laughs) But what I'm talking about is how uh, of, of confirmation bias. And our tendency to relate to things based upon past experiences with things. How does that cause problems? So perception, big area to notice. Oh, the mind is perceiving even simple ways like, you know, 
someone invites you to church. You're like, oh, God, church, man, I don't want to go to church. Because right? church has a perception that's been grafted into your mind. If you don't want to go to church, that's besides the point. It's fine. You can do that if you want to. But what I'm saying is, is every church the same? Is your experience when you're five years old in church going to be the same as this, this church and this moment? You don't know unless you find out. That's another just simple kind of example. So we tend to close our self off to things from past negative perceptions of things. So we've got sensory input and consciousness. We have feeling tone, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. We've got perception. And then we have, which is really the all-star of, of the Buddhist five aggregates, is sankara, which is our conditioning, our reactivity. What we do with all of that, with the perception and the feeling, based on that and your past conditioning, you orient yourself towards experience in a certain way. And you don't do this consciously all the time, but part of the goal of mindfulness is to make what's unconscious conscious. You start to be more conscious of, oh, every time I'm around my parents, I want to go to my room and get on my phone. Oh, interesting. That's what we call in Buddhism sankara, that enactment of that type of, you see me moving a lot. It's that kind of movement of the mind towards reaction. And so, if we can not be so quick as to say, I'm this way or I'm that way. I'm doing well or I'm doing bad. And we can be a little more curious as to what's happening underneath. Feels like this in the body. There's an unpleasantness. There's a perception that this is like this because of that. There's that old conditioning of wanting to relate or react to it in this way. And we can start to watch that process unfold. We really can start to unbound ourselves, untangle ourselves from just reactive habits. You know, we can start to change the narrative of who we are. To be more flexible, to not be so constrained. Because a part of the reason why we believe that we are these ways is because we keep doing the same thing. And it keeps reinforcing the same story. And so part of the problem is not just doing something different, but it's also giving ourselves the grace of not having to limit ourselves to that story. Does that make sense? And this teaching on impermanence and self, uh, which we're going to be talking about a little bit, anatta, the Buddhist teaching on not-self, um, is, is very liberating. And this teaching on the five aggregates is very very liberating. 